So as we get started this evening, first off, there's a little half page, uh, half sheet of paper there on the, uh, on the back table. In fact, Gary, would you bring me one of those? Uh, <laughs> I meant to print off an extra copy and I forgot. Uh, there's a half, also in that box on the back table are a few of the, uh, the secret church books they, they don't have the blanks filled in, but you can go online and get all the answers. Uh, we're going through this study about the authority of Scripture and how do you approach the study of Scripture in an age that is so skeptical about authority and about the Bible. If you would like to have one of those notebooks, uh, feel free to grab, grab one of those and take it with you, and you can take it home for personal study. You can use it just for reference on some of the quotes that we use, some of the statistics when we show the little snippet of the video each Wednesday night, David talks so fast it's hard to keep up with some of the quotes and verses, and that book has all of that printed in there. So we, we should have enough for just about one per family, uh, if that's of interest. There's no, obviously no obligation to take one, but if that's something you would use in your personal uh, study time, we want you to have that. Also tonight, after we finish here in just a little bit, uh, we are having a having a meeting for, if you have questions about the new bylaws, constitution, just basic questions about the process, maybe something that's in there, uh, you want to take a look at that, we'll have a meeting in 200 over here. Nobody goes, comes, I'm going home. So uh, if you, but if you do have questions, seriously, we want you to be able to ask those and uh, as we go through this process of voting on phase one of those new, new constitution and bylaws. So after, and if you can't stick around tonight, uh, we'll do another meeting Sunday morning at 8.30 before, before Sunday school. So if this coming Sunday morning works and you want to ask questions, you'll have an option to, uh, uh, to do that. Okay, let's open in our Bibles to Second Peter. When you get to Second Peter, you're getting very close to the end of the New Testament you make it past all of Paul's letters, you get past the book of Hebrews, then you have 1 Peter, then you have 2 Peter there. Um, what we're talking about tonight is what it means for Scripture to be inspired. Why do we talk about those 66 books in, in the Bible as being the Word of God? What does it mean to say that Scripture is inspired and uh, it's way more than just an academic idea uh, to say that Scripture is inspired. It's everything that we believe in, everything we practice is based on the fact that when you talk about the Bible, you're not simply talking about just any book. You're talking about that this is the Word of God. And the, the controversies that surround that, what does it mean that we have the Word of God? It, it doesn't contain the Word of God, but it is the Word of God when we have the Bible in front of us. And so what's the implications for that? Uh, a theologian named Michael Horton says that the Word of God is not mere information, but the living and active energy of the triune God. Uh, so knowing that we're not just talking about words on a page, we're talking about the work of God, the Word of God given to us. Second Peter chapter 1, starting verse 16. So what, is, what does Scripture say about itself here? For we did not follow... So chapter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths 
when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So you have an immediate contrast between eyewitnesses and myths, something that was just made up out of thin air, that we're talking here about the work of eyewitnesses. Second um, Peter 1, verse 17, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him, on the holy mountain. Now, verses 17 and 18 there refer back to what we often call the transfiguration uh, as the glory of Jesus is unveiled and his three disciples that are with him are able to see that. However, don't miss something here. When you hear about a voice from heaven and a holy mountain, what's another Bible story that comes to, to mind? Yeah, yeah, the, the Mount Sinai, the receiving of the Ten Commandments, God speaking uh, from, from heaven. What's another place in the Bible that you think about a voice from heaven and a holy mountain? This one's a little trickier, but. Yeah, the transfiguration here. Thinking of a third one, but it's really tricky. Sermon on the Mount. Um, so, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes up, probably a hill. It's kind of like calling the Wichita Mountains a mountain, and then you go to the Rocky Mountains, and you feel embarrassed that we have the Wichita Mountains in Oklahoma. But uh, nonetheless, if you've been to Israel, it's a hill-ish that he goes up on for the Sermon on the Mount, a beautiful place. But uh, you go there, and he is speaking, and when he gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people are amazed because he's speaking not as the scribes, but he's speaking as one having authority. And so you have this bit of a tie in the Bible from Mount Sinai to the Sermon on the Mount to the Transfiguration to this passage here in 2 Peter that seems to point back to all those. And so you pick up the Old Testament, you pick up the Gospels, you pick up Jesus himself giving his ministry off to his disciples, and then you come here toward the end of the New Testament and you have these verses. And so Peter has said, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. If I can just make a quick interruption there. Last week we looked at John chapter 1 about the Word of God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word took on flesh. In John, in his writing, there's a huge emphasis on light and dark. That light came into the darkness, but the people did not receive him. And so here you have this emphasis on when the prophetic word is talked about, it's you will do well to pay attention to this as a lamp shining in a dark place. There's some tie-in with John's writings at this point. Um, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I mean, what does morning star scream out? You have another reference here to a prophecy about Jesus. You have this idea of who he would be, this morning star. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture in verse 20 comes from someone's own interpretation. 
For no prophecy, verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 is probably the most famous verse in the New Testament about this idea of how the inspiration of God is given. Um, 2 Timothy 3 talks about all scriptures God breathed, and so that's an important text. But this right here in verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Meaning, if anyone speaks out of their own purposes, their own words for their own good, that was not the word of God being given. Uh, you have multiple places in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 17 and then in Jeremiah, where they'll say, if someone says that they're speaking the word of God and it doesn't happen, you can know absolutely they're not a prophet of God. Uh, if anyone speaks in a way that contradicts the word of God, they're not a prophet of God. All of these things that, that show up, uh, this is the danger that comes when someone shows up on YouTube and they're going to be the next person to tell you how all the stars fit together and when the, when the world is going to end and how all these things fit together. If that doesn't happen and they said it was going, going to happen, then that person is not speaking the word of God. Um, on September the 10th, James Walker is going to be here. James is the president of Watchman Fellowship. He's going to sp be speaking during the Sunday school time at 9.15 about ministry to Jehovah's Witnesses. And one of the things that James will focus on during that time is just tracing back through the history of that religious group and all the times that the end of the world has been predicted and all the times that hasn't happened and showing how there are all these contradictions within those prophecies and over and over, if you speak as the will of man and it doesn't happen, it wasn't the word of God. And so you have this emphasis here in, in 2 Peter 1. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. So this is the revelation of God. God's revealed himself. They meant as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it came from God, and by the work of the Holy Spirit, it has gone out to other people. That's what it means for the word of God to be inspired. On your little half sheet of paper. Uh, this is David Platt's definition for inspiration, um, and he's kind of adopted this from a couple of, merged it together from a couple of theology books, but the mysterious supernatural process by which God worked through human instruments to reveal divine truth in written form. So it's one of those definitions you've got to break down, read it in parts to kind of see what's, what all is going on there. But the mysterious supernatural process, there's something about that we can never fully understand, but we realize it came from God. It's the work of God, not man. God worked through human instruments. That's a very important part of this idea of inspiration, that God has made himself known to us through other people in a way that we can understand. Um, and the purpose is to reveal, to reveal divine truth in written form. What do you see in that definition? What kind of parallels do you see between that idea of Scripture being inspired and who we believe Jesus to be as the Son of God? So think about these, these parallels here. How Scripture is des described as inspired and how we understand Jesus. What, what comparisons, what parallels do you see there? Anything stand out to you?
going once, going twice. Okay, so when we think about who Jesus is, we're understanding this idea. Oftentimes we'll talk about Jesus is fully God, fully divine, and fully human. Um, how can someone be fully both? Well, we understand that as fully God, he didn't hold on to that divinity, but he laid it aside, that Philippians 2 passage, and he took on humanity. The word became flesh, John 1. And so when we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about part God, part man. That's a disaster theologically. And we, we sometimes say that, and we don't realize all the implications of it, but Jesus is fully God, fully man, fully divine, fully human, taking on both of those natures, and yet still God with us. And so when we talk about Scripture, you're talking about the divine word of God. Not the word of man, but the divine word of God, given to us by real people, living in real places, writing real words in ways that can be understood by people. Now that parallel doesn't hold completely, but it's a really important thing to see that as Jesus is the word of God, he's fully God, fully human. As scripture is the word of God, it is fully divine and yet fully of this world. Here's the distinction. In a group like Mormonism, um, and you might say, man, you just pick on different religious groups. I hope I don't come across that way. The reason we talk about these things is because these are the people we interact with, and, and we don't all believe the same thing. Uh, and it's not just agree to disagree. So I, I hope I don't come across as, as picking on people. These are just conversations we need to have. In Mormonism, how do you understand the way that the scriptures were given? Does anybody know some of that story, like how the scriptures came? Yeah, so there's kind of a dream vision going on, um, and then the scriptures are dropped down in what form? Yeah, these like special golden tablets that are given, and uh, you know, so how does that differ from the way that the Christian scriptures are received? Well, the Christian scriptures came on parchment, <laughs> came on papyrus, came in the form of scrolls, and they came over the period of 3,000 years. Um, didn't just fall out of heaven at one time on golden plates. It came all of these people across all of this time written on real paper. And it kind of is that same reason that the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, is so important to, to what we believe about Christianity. He didn't come as a king riding on a horse with all this royal regalia saying, look at me, he came as a baby. And you think of the way that our scriptures were received, they were received in kind of a normal way. <laughs> they came through all these different people writing of all this different time. And I think that just, it's another connection about how God has come to us and he's revealed himself in a way that we can connect with. He came to the common man, so to speak. He didn't come in, in a way that said, I'm, somehow you've got to re get to me. He said, I'll come to you. And so I want you to see that connection because when we talk about inspiration, part of what makes inspiration so great is the way it happened over time, which leads to the next part. What are the signs? So let's say somebody walked in, heard me blabber on for a couple of minutes, and they said, who are you to say that your religious book is inspired? That's so egotistical. Why would you ever say it's inspired? Well, point number two under inspiration there in your notes, what are the signs of inspiration? The first is prophecy. Platt makes the point 
in the Secret Church notebook. And, and I don't think I'd seen it put like this, and I have not researched this to know whether it's true or not. Uh, but it, it strikes me as really powerful. He says, other books that claim divine inspiration, then you, you know, uh, Islam, Hinduism, Mormonism, none of those religious books contain any predictive prophecy. Then you think about the way that the Bible works, and you have hundreds of predictive prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament with the coming of Jesus all throughout the life of Jesus. Um, turn over to, uh, in your Bible to John chapter 19. So you go to something, and not to over-exaggerate, but you could almost randomly open your New Testament and fall on a prophecy at, at some point. And so one of the signs that a book would be inspired that would have come from a God, and I use a God in the sense that we would be having a conversation with somebody and they don't really believe in God, but how do you know that your book came from a God? Well, something was written at this point in history, it predicted X would happen, and then X actually happened, that would be a big deal. So you go to, to something like John chapter 19, and you start maybe in uh, verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So you have this uh, Psalm 22 verse that is out there about the suffering of the Messiah, and then the coming of the Messiah, and you have it right here. This is fulfilled. When you read the Gospel of Matthew and you read the Gospel of John, You'll see the word fulfilled just show up over and over and over again. Um, another example, a little further down, you go down to verse 27. He said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. And then in verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. That's a reference back to Psalm chapter 69. Um, and we could go on and on and on and find these Ooh, sorry about that. That was scary. That was not prophesied that that would happen. <laughs> wow. So over 300 prophecies that are fulfilled in, in the coming of Christ. Just to use an example, though, to show you that one of the marks, one of the signs that a book would have come from a God would be a divine book, would be that there were prophecies made that only the God could know, that the people would never know whether this came true or not. And you see so many examples of that in Scripture. The second sign that it was inspired, that people did not write this, is the internal unity of Scripture amid all, all, oh, good night. I'll stop talking. Do we need, there we go, thanks. Um, this internal unity amidst all this diversity. So if, if someone pinned me down on the road and said, Owen, you're a preacher, think highly of the Bible. Why do you think the Bible came from God? Why do you think the Bible is inspired? If I was having a conversation on the street or with a family member or friend and was asked that question, this is the first point I always go to. 
uh, because this, at least for me, is one of those deeply confirming things. And when you take a book from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 and you see the way the story progresses, written by multiple people from multiple places over all this time, and the story fits together so perfectly, and you see it as one story, one thread running through there, that's the reason it's so powerful as your kids go to Sunday school and, and learn the story of the Bible, the way it fits together. I think for me that internal unity, it's one story revealing the work of this God, but it's given through all these people all this time. You think about the different uh, authors of Scripture. You have farmers, you have fishermen, you have scholars, you have lawyers, you have kings, you have priests, you have rulers, you have generals, you have all these different people from all these places. So for me, if someone pinned me down and said, why do you believe the Bible is the word of God? I think it's the unity amidst all this diversity uh, that's in there. Number three, another reason that you would say the Bible is the word of God is it's had an impact across so many locations and across so much time in history. Uh, there are random people that, that rise up from time to time and give religious messages, and it carries a following for a little while, and then it just disappears. Or it will have a following in maybe one particular area. It works for a while in one place, and then it's gone. You talk about the Bible and the geographical extent of the impact, the historical extent of the impact. You see the way that this was just not one person, one place. This was the God who created the whole world, who's over all of history has given us, given us this book. Uh, you have New Testament authors who are identifying Scripture. If you can go back to 2 Peter uh, just for a second, there's an interesting reference uh, when you get to the end of End of 2 Peter, you get to chapter 3. Roger, should I go to a handheld? Would that be better? Or Okay, let's see. Let's try that. Okay, so Second Peter uh, chapter 3, you go down to verse 14. Uh, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Uh, verse 15, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Verse 16, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. That's such a comforting verse in Scripture to know that Peter has trouble understanding some of the things that Paul said, which is really the pot calling the kettle black because you want to talk about some difficult things to understand in the Bible. You look at Peter's writings, he's got some tough things uh, to understand, but he refers to them their heart, but which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. 
Sometimes people, if they're not particularly familiar with the Bible, they'll say something like, well, the New Testament authors never refer to the New Testament as Scripture. They just refer to the Old Testament as Scripture. Um, once again, our friend Lee Corso, not so fast, my friend, because it is indication right here. You have a New Testament author referring to another New Testament author as writing Scripture. Um, and so it's one of your earliest indications that these authors saw themselves as apostles giving Scripture on par with, with the Old Testament. Um, plus there's a little bit of humor worked in there. Uh, you have Jesus, going back to your notes, point E there under signs, you have Jesus' testimony about himself in the Scriptures. Don't miss the point that if you say that the Scriptures are not divine, that if a person says that, your only options about Jesus is either that he was delusional or he was a liar. Uh, because Jesus most certainly identifies Scripture as coming from God. He speaks the words of Scripture. And in doing so, either he spoke the truth, he was a crazy man, or he was lying. Those are really the only options uh, that you're left with because of something like Luke chapter 24. Now, your smart friends, and I don't say that in a smart aleck way. I mean, truly, your friends that think about these things they're not going with you on the idea the Bible is true. They struggle. They trip over Christianity. One of their arguments back at you at this point is, aren't you using circular reasoning? You're saying that the Bible is true, and then you're appealing to the Bible to make your argument. So isn't this circular reasoning? I want you to listen to, uh, to how Platt addresses this in his Secret Church presentation. And then he tells a really great story uh, about the power of God's word. And we're going to come back and, and look at this. So he's dealing with this argument. Is it circular reasoning to say, I believe the Bible. Why do you believe the Bible? Because the Bible says it's true. That sounds circular. So listen to what he has to say. Reality. Now, it's at this point when talking about how Scripture teaches inspiration. Paul and fishermen like Peter and John. If you're not following along, that was about five pages. We just went through. So... Again, so this is, this is something that sets the Bible apart from other books like the Quran, the Book of Mormon that were written by one author. Here you have a wide variety of authors with a wide variety of styles. Did you get, can you go to that uh, time that was on the note? Uh, okay, okay. So writing styles, you have laws, you have genealogies, you have psalms of praise, you have laments, you have oracles of judgment, you have biographical gospel accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you have narratives of theological history, you have letters to churches, apocalyptic prophecies, and on and on and on. So you have a wide variety of authors with a wide variety of styles working through a wide variety of processes. So think about the different ways God spoke to different writers at different times. You have divine dictation in a sense, God would say, write this down. You have historical research. Luke was a historian, as well as John saying, here's all the things that I wrote down, but there's so many other things I didn't have, don't have space to write them all down. You have dreams and visions like we see with Ezekiel, Daniel, even Paul. And sometimes, much like we were talking about direct and indirect speech earlier, you simply had authors who were hearing God's voice. Uh, the Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears, Isaiah 22:14. So, wide variety of different authors, styles, different ways God's speaking, but how did God do this? How did God inspire Scripture? Through a wide variety of authors, wide variety of styles, through a wide variety of processes. Excuse me. <clears throat> oh, that was nice. Sorry. <laughs> that moment when you clear your throat and 50 plus thousand people <clears throat> are a part of it. Sorry, I got something caught in there. You mind throwing me that water? Thanks. 
Oh, hey, is this the number on the, uh, the little sticky note there? Seems off from what? Roger, did I leave that sticky note back there with the number? Okay, that's all right. The Bible hinges on that reality. Now, it's at this point when talking about how Scripture teaches inspiration from the prophets, the apostles, to Jesus, some might say, well, wait a minute. Is Scripture, is using Scripture to assert the inspiration of Scripture a circular argument? Circular argument. So follow this. The argument is that we believe Scripture is divine. Why? Because Scripture claims to be divine. And we believe Scripture's claims to be divine. Why? Because Scripture is divine. So isn't that a circular argument? Well, sure it is. But here's the reality. Any argument for absolute authority will ultimately, inevitably, appeal to its own authority. Now, here's a few examples. You might say, well, my reason is my ultimate authority, to which I would ask, why? And the inevitable answer you would give is, because that seems reasonable to me. You might say, well, logical consistency is my ultimate authority. Something has to be logically consistent in order for me to believe it, to which I would ask, why is that the case? And you would answer, because that's logical to me. Or someone, maybe, maybe an atheist or agnostic might say, I know there's no ultimate authority, to which I would ask, how do you know there's no ultimate authority? And the answer you would inevitably give is, because I don't know of any ultimate authority. Now, the point in all that is, we need to realize any argument for absolute authority is going to ultimately, inevitably, appeal to its own authority. So that shouldn't keep us from believing what that authority says. It should simply cause us to say, well, does that supposed authority have credibility? And that question then leads to our responsibility, at which point I believe our challenge is to listen to the Bible's testimony to itself. The Bible clearly claims to be inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. So Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament alike, claims to be inspired. So listen to the Bible's testimony about itself, and then look for validation of that testimony. Externally, externally, this is where I love this quote from R.C. Sproul. He said, the very dimension of the sheer fulfillment of prophecy of the Old Testament Scriptures should be enough to convince anyone that we are dealing with a supernatural piece of literature. God has himself planted within the Scriptures an internal consistency that bears witness that this is his word. So look externally at the supernatural nature of Scripture, and then look internally, meaning in your own heart, and ask, is this book supernatural? Is this book supernatural? Calvin writes, now this power, which is peculiar to Scripture, is clear from the fact that of human writings, however artfully polished, there is none capable of affecting us at all comparably. Read Demosthenes or Cicero, read Plato, Aristotle, others of that tribe. They will, I admit, allure you, delight you, move you, enrapture you in wonderful measure. But betake yourself from them to this sacred reading. Then in spite of yourself, so deeply will it affect you, so penetrate your heart, so fix itself in your very marrow, that compared with its deep impression, such vigor as the orators and philosophers will have one will nearly vanish. Consequently, it is easy to see that the sacred scriptures, which so far surpass all gifts and graces of human endeavor, breathe something divine. You know, I, I've shared this story before, but it's worth bringing it back up here. Like, one of our uh, missionaries of the IMB was telling me a story about being in one particular country, and he's on the streets with a cup of the New Testament, and he's trying to share the gospel with different people in this particular city, and uh, he starts talking to a guy, and the guy looks down at the New Testament and says, oh, that, that book you're holding, uh, 
it's got nice paper that's really good for rolling cigarettes. And so our missionary said, well, all right, uh, I'll tell you what, I'll give you this book with all of its nice paper if you'll promise me that before you tear out a page and roll it into a cigarette, you'll read that page. So just read the page before you, and the guy was like, so I just need to read it, and then I can roll it and smoke it. He's like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I just said. So, uh, so, uh, so he gives the guy the New Testament, he leaves, comes back weeks later, sees the same guy on the street, and says, hey, have you been doing what I asked you to do? And the guy looks at him and says, well, I read and smoked my way through Matthew. <laughs> and then I smoked my way through Mark and Luke. The guy said, I smoked all the way to John 3. He said, I came to this verse, verse 16, everything makes sense. God loves me enough to send his son Jesus to die for me. So now I've put my faith in him and trusted him to save me from my sins. So uh, that guy is now training to be a pastor. So I'm not necessarily recommending that particular method of evangelism. <laughs> but I am saying that this word has power. That's such a great story. I want to get, even though it was awkward watching the still image, like that story is worth it. So uh, I smoked my way through Matthew, I smoked my way through Mark, all the way to John 3. And you see the work of, of the power of God that one of those arguments that sometimes you make about Scripture being divine, and you have to be careful about this, but sometimes what the best argument you can do is just hand someone the Word of God and say, well, you go read it. Or, or better yet, I'll read it with you. And the power of God's word, the work of God's spirit begins to penetrate someone's heart. Uh, a lot of times people are rejecting something they've never read. Uh, they're rejecting it out of hand without ever experiencing what it is to, to read that. And so whether they smoke their way through it or however they get through it, uh, the fact that they're just there reading it and experiencing the power of God's word. Uh, one of the greatest evangelistic tools you have is to sit down with someone who doesn't believe in Jesus and just read the Bible together. Uh, when we were in New Orleans, the church I pastored, uh, there were guys from the neighborhood who loved to play basketball. They wouldn't set foot in a church building, uh, if anything, but they would come to uh, our parking lot because we had a basketball goal there, and we had a church member who started something with them called Above the Rim, uh, and he would bring them in, they would sit down and read scripture and together, these, most of these guys had never read the Bible before, they would sit down and read scripture together and then he would take them outside and let them use our basketball goal and they would put together these tournaments and, and things like that. And just the simple act of sitting with these guys and reading scripture, many of them began to open their hearts to the things of the Lord because they had someone who cared about them, they had never read the Bible before, and so most of their responses to the Bible stories were so authentic. Uh, like, hey, do you really actually believe that happened? Or, oh my word, if that happened, then what about this? Just all brand new. Um, and it all happened. He didn't do a Bible lesson with them. He didn't do a devotion with them. All he did, he brought them in the room. They read scripture and they played basketball. And, and God used that in, in really powerful ways. What is the uh, purpose of God's word being inspired? Going back to your notes and, and getting ready to wrap up here. The purpose of God's word is that when God speaks, he creates things. God speaks, things happen. Uh, he brings conviction through his word. The word of God is living and active, able to penetrate like a surgeon's scalpel, 
even between the joint and the marrow, be able to get down there. He brings conviction, and then he brings recreation. I love the way that scripture works. Creation, conviction, recreation. God's word make things happen. God's word bring conviction when it isn't happening, and then God's word transforms and restores. Able to do everything we need from beginning to end. Um, so, yes, the Bible is one of the greatest recreational books uh, of all time, if that helps you remember it. It recreates, it brings back what God has always desired for his people in, in, in creation. One word I wanted to include in here is the idea of the canon. When we talk about canon, um, Kids always like this because it's canon with one end, not two ends. It's not the canon that shoots things. It's, it's canon in the sense of an ancient word that meant a list or a standard. Actually, the original word was for a reed that you would pick out of the water, along the edge of the water, and they would use reeds as measuring sticks um, to make sure they kept standardized measurements. The word canon went from reed to standard to list to list of books is kind of the way that that word progressed over time and so it came to be known as the list of holy books used of many different religions but especially in christianity to talk about the books of the bible that we have uh we have now how did we end up with the books in the bible why are those considered inspired why are those considered scripture well there's a couple of tests um, you're not going to find these on a list anywhere, but just as we think about the way this process worked, first, was it written by a prophet, an apostle, or someone directly first generation connected to a prophet or apostle? Uh, so did they come from someone hearing the words of God and then passing them on? Second, does it have the ring of truth or unity to it? Um, does it fit with the other books that have been given as the word of God? You're going to walk into Barnes & Noble or, uh, you don't walk into bookstores anymore, so that's a terrible example. But you go on Amazon and you go looking for a, you go looking for a book uh, and you see the other Gospels or the Lost Gospels or people will say, well, why didn't that book make it in? These are kind of the tests. And one of the, one of the things you'll see most frequently for a book that didn't make it into the Bible, so to speak, to use that language, is it just doesn't fit with the story of Scripture. Remember, one of the things about Scripture being inspired is that it's a story running from beginning to end. Many of the books, not including with Scripture, not included in Scripture, are just tangents, going off in completely different directions. And so one of the reasons they weren't considered inspired is they weren't a part of that truth and unity of Scripture. There's some amazing miracles that are portrayed in the Bible. You start reading some of these books that were not included in Scripture there's miracle stories are just fantasy-like. Um, somebody coming back from the dead, yeah. Pretty miraculous, sounds pretty crazy. Somebody coming back from the dead and standing 20 feet tall with an oversized head carrying a cross behind you, that's the kind of stories you find in the books not included in the Bible. And so you can see one has the ring of miracle the other has the sound of fantasy. Um, and so there's a difference in the way that these books uh, are, are portrayed. Third, is it powerful? Does it have the work to transform somebody's life? Four, is it worshipful or Catholic? And that's not Catholic in the Roman Catholic church sense. It's Catholic in the, the word Catholic means universal or, or all-encompassing. And so books were included in the Bible as they became a part of the church universal. 
So one random church couldn't pop up and say, hey, we have this new book. It's going to be part of the scripture. If it wasn't used by churches in many different areas, it wasn't included in the canon. It wasn't made part of, of the list that, be, that you have now in, in your Bible. Um, and so it was revealed by God, recognized by humans. Let me read that quote on the bottom just because F.F. F. Bruce is uh, scholar from the 20th century that's done some of the best work on canon uh, scholarship and research, but this quote sums it up right here. One thing must be emphatically stated. The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in a list. On the contrary, the church included them in her list because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and generally apostolic authority, direct or indirect, meaning came from an apostle or an associate of the apostle. What these early church councils, these are like the third and fourth century groups that got together to talk about this. What these early church councils did was not to impose something new upon the Christian communities, but to codify what was already the general practice of these communities. What you will hear on all the documentaries that show up around the time of Easter, and what you'll hear if you go read some of these other books or take a class, is the early church developed the list of Scripture. What comes across as is a bunch of people decided these books are in and these books are out. That's not the way it happened. These early groups that got together were categorizing, they were formalizing a process that had been going on since the time of Jesus. And so you've got to watch out for these comments about, well, there was a group of people who decided these books were scripture and these weren't. That's just not the way it happened. Um, they, were, they were formalizing a process. If it's of interest to you, um, I've included on the back some of the earliest lists of scripture, um, where they came from, books that were included. This was a process that took time as these books were recognized. Um, finally, when you get down to about 367, you start seeing uh, the, the 27 books of the New Testament that we consider, um, we recognize as scripture, you start to see those develop, but I thought that might be of interest to you there, there on the back. So what I would want you to know, just when we talk about scripture, we're talking about a book that carries power, that carries truth, that carries hope. It's the word of salvation. And the reason it is, is because it comes from God, not from man. And these are reasons why we believe that to be true, and I hope you could use them in conversations with, with other people. Let me pray for us, and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for the gift of being able to get together to study your word. And we, we study not simply to have more information. We study because we want to worship you, because we desire that our lives will be transformed, because we want to be able to speak to our friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors who, understandably, we understand are skeptical about the idea of a religious book. They're skeptical about the idea of God giving his people a book. But God, I pray that you would work in our lives in such a way that we would know how to speak in such a way that they would see the hope and the power and the love that you've given us through Scripture. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you for being here tonight. God bless you.